Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Nam mihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance Tene. Professor Dame Anne Salmond is an historian at the University of Auckland. The 2013 New Zealander of the Year is also a keen environmentalist. And together with architect husband Jeremy Salmond, owns a property that they've been turning into an eco-sanctuary. It's all been possible with help from a large number of people and organisations, including the Queen Elizabeth II National Trust, or QE2 Trust as it's more usually known. We'll hear more about their role helping landowners to covenant land with high conservation values. But first, let's hear from Jeremy and Anne about a patch of forest known as Longbush and the Waikereru Eco Sanctuary. This is a place in Gisborne which has long family ties uh, for me because when I was a kid we used to come up here and swim in the swimming hole that was just there in the Waimata River. And so Longbush is a kind of mythical place for me and my brothers and sisters. And in 2000, well, it was 1999, uh, Jeremy and I came up the road uh, to see our old stamping ground because we came here too when we were courting, thought it would be a lovely place to maybe build a house one, one day. And, and there was a sign, a for sale sign on the, on the fence that said for forestry or grazing. And we thought... Not forestry on Longbush. <laughs> so that's how it started. So what was here when you arrived, first of all, Jeremy? A lovely stretch of bush with lovely cows grazing under it and nibbling off everything that uh, came through the ground. So it was just trees. And on the other side of the road were these very steep paddocks with falling down fences and collapsing trees and stock under those as well. But we wandered around one of the creeks up there and thought, gosh, this would be a nice place to be. I think we put out an offer in that weekend, didn't we? we? Did, yeah. 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 <laughs> it was mad. Yeah. So how big's the piece of land you've got? Um, it's rather bigger than we thought. It's um, 120 hectares. We were told, weren't we, don't bite off more than you, you can chew. So we did. And we've been chewing energetically ever since, really. <laughs> hmm. So what have you done with your original patch of bush that had the cows underneath? Oh, well, that was the very first thing that we turned into a covenant because we could. it's, it's um, a rare strip of alluvial you know, riverside bush. There's not much of that left in, on the east coast. And so we knew it was important and we knew it was also going to be killed if, uh, if the grazing kept on going. And so we went to QE2 and they helped us to fence it, which was fantastic. So that was the very first thing we did. And as soon as the fence went up, of course all the weeds started coming because people had dumped household refuse there for a long time. So there was all sorts of weeds. And, you know, I was wandering around with a backpack trying to control it. And then, of course, we met Steve Sawyer, who was just in the process of leaving Doc to set up his own business um, looking after endangered species, eco work. So... 
So we met Steve really early on in the piece, um, and we've been working with him ever since. Have things improved down there? It's absolutely beautiful now. Because the weeds have receded, and all the native plants have taken their place. And the explosion of plant life in the bush was astonishing. Uh, and it got to the stage of quite quickly in places you couldn't walk through it because of Kawakawa forests. And then other things like uh, the black orchid and the green hooded orchid. Yeah. And what and else? And the birds started. And the birds. Yeah, lots and, and lots birds. of birds started coming back. And the old name of the place is Waikereru, um, so it's, you know, Kereru Waters. And it, there's always been Kereru here, but they have, the numbers have, you know, skyrocketed. And that's true. I mean, we get, we've got a dawn chorus here now that's really pretty impressive. It's lethal. <laughs> Wakes us up. <laughs> and what's been happening on the rest of your property? Sitting here looking around, it looks like you've got some really good regeneration going on. For a while we grazed it, and we started paying huge amounts of money to fences to, to fence off parts of it, so we decided what we would keep as paddock and what we thought we should just leave to regenerate, because that was the objective. We didn't really know what we were doing when we came, did we? But yeah. then we just realised that... Our mission in life was to kind of regenerate the landscapes and and we decided we would make um, an arboretum, a native arboretum. The very first major planting we did was what we call the arboretum and that's uh, along the foothills instead of, because this is cyclone boulder country, it was all tum- tumbling down. 1986. And, yes, and so w- instead of pinning it with poplars or something like that, what we decided to do was to to plant these big groves of, you know, 20 karaka and, you know, 30 tōtara, uh, 20 this and that, you know, big mass plantings. And in between each big uh, grove of a particular native species of tree, we, we planted the Rini Orchiston flax collection so that we've got these, you know, 60-odd varieties of harakeke, um in the arboretum as well. And that's, been, that's worked out brilliantly because what happens is that the kereru and the other birds, they fly from longbush... And they fly over the meadow and have, you know, aerobatics and things, which they seem to love. And then they go into the arboretum, which is fruiting furiously these days, and then up into the hills. And the kereru, of course, do a lot of planting for us with the, you know, little pellets of nitrogen wrapped around the seeds. And we haven't really planted anything in the hills. We just let the birds do the, do the planting. And one of the things that um, I'm really interested in, I serve on the Air New Zealand Sustainability Panel, and trying to make an airline sustainable is like trying to climb Mount Everest. It's really difficult. And so carbon offsetting is very important. And we're very, I'm very interested, uh, along with a whole lot of other people, especially on the East Coast, we think that um, the best way of carbon offsetting in a highly erodible landscape like this is going to end up being native forest um, and using uh, the manuka and kanaka for honey production in the early stages and later on perhaps doing sustainable logging. In the, in the long run, high-value logs that are extracted um, by helicopter, perhaps, and that kind of thing. And so we've put the 100 hectares of hills into... A, we had an afforestation grant scheme that enabled us to do, do the fencing and put in trap lines. And QE2 has been great to work with. Anne and Jeremy Salmond now have three covenants covering most of their land. The covenants are a collaboration with the Queen Elizabeth II National Trust, which was created 40 years ago with its own Act of Parliament. Its aim is to encourage and promote, for the benefit of New Zealand, the provision, protection, preservation and enhancement of open space. Canterbury farmer James Guild is chair of the Trust.
it's really a collection of people with an enthusiasm for protecting natural biodiversity on private land. It's a structure, it's an organisation involving uh, office staff in Wellington, involving reps across the country, but probably more importantly involving 4,500-odd covenanters who've all put bits of land aside and, and are looking after it with the trust and partnership. So you are a covenanter, I understand. So can you explain to me what it was that motivated you to get involved? So, you know, what was the bit of your land that you wanted to look after and why did you choose to put a covenant on it? We started looking at covenanting back in the 80s. We didn't actually complete it until the 90s for a variety of different reasons. And the property I'm on in, in Western Canterbury um, was, was a large high country station with a lot of development potential. And throughout the 70s and 80s, we were encouraged by government policies and various other things to develop land. So there were land development encouragement grants and livestock incentive schemes and so forth. And I think a, a lot of us at some stage paused and thought, there are some things that we need to preserve, so we need to get the balance right. So to some extent, um, that's what motivates us. So I've, I looked at looking after a, a riverbed area, uh, which had a variety of different... Um, it's a high country station, so it's um, that in Madagari and, and old um, Manuka and Red Tussocks and various other different types of riverbed communities. Uh, and since then, we've We've covenanted another two areas and we've got another two in the pipeline as well. Most of what we've been doing is about water and, and wetlands and, and preservation of streams and so forth. Um, so it's quite different than some of the bush blocks that, that are around the country. But throughout the nation we have everybody who believes they've got something which is good, natural, uh, original biodiversity and needs protection. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's a dunland, whether it's tussock land, whether it's... Whether it's um, you know, dense bush or open scrubland or something, all that is, is part of the mosaic that we've protected. So why have you had a covenant put on it? Does that offer you legal protection for that bit of land? Yeah, that's that's the bit that the, the trust does. The, the trust partners with the landowner to ensure that the protection is there in perpetuity. And we, regardless of who owns it, that's registered on the title, and if the land's sold, then the, then the trust maintains the, the protection of that on behalf of the original covenanter. Uh, so it's a, it's a legal protectionism which is very robust. We've, we've tested it in the courts. It's deemed to be indefeasible, which means it's got a status probably on a par with national parks. So when we say in perpetuity, we mean exactly that. It'll be there forever. Does this land have to have certain sorts of natural values to be become a covenant under the trust? Yes, it does. At the moment, we're using as a guideline the, the four principles under the LENZ, the lens classifications, which are regionally rare, threatened species and so forth. So we, most of our covenants will qualify for at least one, if not several, of those four classifications. So we, we don't take the point of view that every bit of bush or every um, native area is necessarily should be protected. In some cases there are people just wanting a cheap fence. So we look very much at the covenanter, their motivation, what they want to do and and the value of the area. And we're slightly spoilt for choice at the moment. We've got more people coming wanting to protect. So while we're not turning away, we are being very surprised at the quality of the of the of the land that's coming towards us for protection. Where does your funding come from? We're principally funded by by the Crown through government funding, through um, vote conservation. Uh, we have some of our own funding, um, but we, we largely rely on 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 a Crown grant annually, um, which is about four and a half million dollars a year. So your covenants run the length and breadth of New Zealand. 
We do, yes. About 70% of New Zealand's in private ownership. About 1% of that is now in, in QE2 covenants. It doesn't sound a lot, but when you add it up, it it's amounts to about 185,000 hectares, which is a lot of land. If you, if, you put, if you add that into a collective mass, it's the same size as Stewart Island. Um, it's the same size as Greater Auckland. It's about the size of three of our smallest national parks. So it, it, it is, it's a significant area, and, and it's a significant organisation because of that. So over the years, there's been about $1.4 billion of landowner funding gone into that over the 40 years that we're celebrating. Um, and on average, if you just, just do the simple terms, it means that every, every four or five days, another covenant's being registered. The QE2 Trust has been celebrating its 40th birthday with covenanters around the country. And at the recent Gisborne party held at the Simons property, I caught up with Carol and Steve Ring. They organically farm Dexter cattle on a rural property with a long history. We live at Waimata Valley. Um, It was originally a lodge station started in the 1800s by J.C. Field taken over by his son Lawson Field. So very historic. Yes and then the family sold and it's now been split into small sections a lot into forestry and we have 180 acres with 4.7 hectares in QE2 bush. So when you bought the property you already had a covenant on it? Yes yeah it's already set in place we just have to really look after the trees Mm. Make sure the cattle don't get in and the pests and weeds are controlled. So did you mind having a covenant on your land? Was that an advantage or a disadvantage well, for you? Well, at the you? beginning I thought, oh, heck, what's going you know, to go off here? Well, no, it was, it was fine. Um, and if it's a good asset. It's a nice drive through and, and uh, it brings a certain sort of something to the place. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about your patch of bush. Well, it's got carcateer, rirawiras and loads of other things which are... Uh, Carol can probably have a better <laughs> idea than I do. I'm, yeah. I'm not a tree person. We've got a lot of the fuchsia tree, which is not around in certain places. It likes the cooler temperatures, which is what we are. We're at the top. We get snow each year and really good frost. Mm. So we've got the fuchsias, we've got whitey woods... We've got tea tokies. We've got an old stand of pigeonwood trees that isn't in the covenant but is in the middle of a field. It's just beautiful. Mm. Um, there's lots of ferns that we've got. Malcolm showed us that we've got orchids, tree orchids in the trees mm. that are really quite rare and special. There's lots of epiphytes coming off the trees. We've got a small rewa rewas right from sort of little ones growing up. So all you're the starting at about knee height and going up. Yes. Yeah. Well, you think that some of these trees that we've got were, were started, started growing about the time that Michelangelo was doing the Sistine Chapel? <laughs> it's quite amazing, really. Yeah, yeah. Mm, There's always lots of bird life around as well. We've mm. got wood pigeons that fly over your heads yeah, the, all the around the place. Bellbirds, twoies, all mm. all range of. And Malcolm, Malcolm's given us some traps, didn't he? And we've yeah. been trapping, so we've been catching rats, stoats, hedgehogs, the occasional cat. Yeah, so we could get rid of those. So hopefully, we should see the wildlife increase. Yeah. So how long have you been there now? Two and a half years. And we love it. Yeah, we love living up there. And there's actually, you drive through the Covenant every time you go in or out of the property. It's sort of in the middle of the property. 
Um, and at night when you walk up through there's glowworms, the whole side of the banks are all lit up with all the glowworms that are there. Really quite special. It's not just forest that can be covered by a QE2 covenant. Covenant number 4400 was finalised just in time for the Trust's 40th birthday, and it's a salt meadow owned by Dunedin couple Judith and Gary Shields. They were looking around for a smaller, more manageable rural lifestyle block when they came across a perfect piece of land at Karatane, just north of the city. The uh, attraction to it was it was lovely rolling grass, sort of a spur, and then it led right down into where the estuary backed up into sort of a what looked like wetlands to us. And we really liked the look of the place, but it had been quite denuded and cattle had been grazing in the wetland area. And we thought we'd like to um, restore that and get it back to what it should be looking like. And there was no native trees in that area. So, yeah, we wanted to just fence off the wetland piece and uh, plant some native trees to protect it and to filter the water that was running off the hillside into the wetland area. So did you already know about the Queen Elizabeth II National Trust at that stage? Uh, Yes, we had heard of it, but uh, hadn't bought the land specifically with that in mind. The first contact was with the dock um, conservation people, and I I spoke to um, Morgan Trotter, who uh, helped me with some funding to get some fencing in. And he mentioned the QE2 side of things to me and the contact person, Robin Thomas, down here. So that began the process of us trying to understand what it would mean if we went into QE2 and how much control we'd still have on the land, even though it's going to be protected. We had no intention of ever selling the place, and I'm sure it'll just go down to the kids and they'll carry it on. But it just meant that whatever happened in the future, that area would be well looked after and be a little bit of conservation work and protection of the environment. Because it is an area where the, um, there's a lot of wading birds who feed and nest in there, and also the whitebait come up there to um, spawn. So what kind of birds do you see? Oh, a huge range of birds. Lots of swans and ducks and gulls, of course, but plovers, spur-winged plovers, herons, spoonbills, stilts, mallards, all the range of um, ducks that you can think of, uh, Canada geese. Uh, and uh, there's lots of little twists out that area as well, and skylarks. Hmm. And what what's out there in, in the way of plants? I mean, this sounds like a very low marshy area to me. It's actually a salt meadow, and the plants... I'm not a botanist, so I don't know the details of the plants, but... Um, when Robin Thomas was out assessing the property for entry into the QE2 Trust, he took a lot of photographs of the plants that are out on the wet, on the salt meadow, and he sent them the photographs to uh, by a botanist in Christchurch, and she um, said there were some really significant plants. But you're quite right; they're very hard to see when you go out walking there. They're tiny tiny little um, flat-growing plants, so you could sort of walk along over the top of them without really realising the significance of them, actually. 
Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao horihori, ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. And I'm Alison Balance with an Our Changing World feature, celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Queen Elizabeth II National Trust. Anne and Jeremy Salmond have three conservation covenants on their Gisborne property, and the third is a more unusual one. It recognises the educational and public outreach activity that the Waikereru Trust is encouraging at Longbush and the Waikereru Eco Sanctuary. At its heart is a cluster of small buildings covered by a soaring roof, known as the Welcome Shelter. We've got, also got a covenant around the Welcome Shelter, uh, because that's that was a pretty big project. In the 1769 garden, I think with Philip Smith and with Malcolm Rutherford from QE2 and, and Graham Atkins from DOC, uh, who's a tohunga for these plants, the rare plants uh, from the east coast that were collected by Banks and Solander from the Endeavour in 1769, I think it will become a nationally important garden in the long run. It's very young still, but it's already starting to look beautiful. 1769 is an auspicious date in New Zealand history. Captain Cook and the crew of the Endeavour made landfall at Gisborne, met local Māori, and Banks and Solander, the ship's naturalists, collected and scientifically named the first native New Zealand plants. Landscape architect Philip Smith from O2 Landscapes was tasked with designing a garden that will be one of the foci for the 250th anniversary celebrations of that first encounter. What you want to do, and kind of the guiding design idea or philosophy, was just create a series of impressions that they might have seen in 1769. Amazingly, Banks and Solander arrived on a day that Corfire was in full bloom, which... When you think about it, they travelled all the way across the world in a boat. And then they arrived here on the day when Corfi's in flower, which is one of our most spectacular flowering plants. So basically, they just saw yellow. So without getting all botanical on it, they just saw yellow. And in a sense, we just want to have a blaze of yellow. It doesn't actually matter about the botany because their eyes saw yellow. And one, But one of the other things that we took as a, a principle when we were designing it is... They came all the way across the world, and to them, everything was exotic. And there's a danger with native horticulture and with conservation that we can kind of revere this word native too much, that it, everything becomes a bit too familiar, where there are, there's, there are no more discoveries to be made, or, or it's just sort of like the familiar thing that you should do, because it's native. And so we really wanted to take the idea of the native as exotic, and so that's the idea that we've really pushed in the garden. And that's why one of the first impressions you get here is a grove of a small tree that grows as a shadowy column. It's nationally threatened, called Pittosporum mobcordatum, heartleaf kohuhu, and they just grow as these weird shadowy columns. And it's just such a sort of strange, exotic kind of a grove to go into that integrates into the Corfire Grove. So what we want is we just want for people to walk through something and sort of and, and think, hang on, what's going on here? This this isn't what I thought um, a, a native garden should be. So they've got tiny little leaves. They're a classic divaricating plant, aren't they, with lots of twiggy leaves and all into, into growing into each other. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And they look unrecognisable compared to what people usually think of as a pittosporum. 
and they um, they have scented flowers. But it, again, it's that shadowy column that they form. It's just purely that really peculiar form. And to walk through this grove of all of these shadowy columns, I think, it's just a, a, an eccentric experience. Now, there's a whole lot of long barrows of rocks ahead of us. Tell me about those. When you're going to be planting up and designing a garden like this, which, in essence, it's as much a park as a garden, if not more, a park, because that's how it's designed. We, we just want for people just to be able to shove the picnic blanket out and, and um, have a nice day <laughs> without having to get too intellectual on everything and be told everything. So it's a park to spend time in, and then there are a whole bunch of cool plants, and there's, there's a story that comes with it. But... It takes quite a while for plants to grow. <laughs> and so it's all fine and well to say, yeah, in 20 years' time, these things are going to be big. But at the beginning, we wanted to have um, some kind of structure for the garden to hang off that's really quite strong and abstract. And again, we didn't really need for it to try and replicate something like Autari or some of the other really great native gardens. And so these kind of, they're almost... I hesitate to use the term kind of land art, but they're kind of they're more towards that where they've got a sculptural quality to them, and they um, demonstrate the certain forms that were in the the landscape prior to Cook arriving, and the thing that I find most interesting about them and that I really wanted to communicate was that Maori had very strict geometry on which their cultivations were applied. These pieces of geometry, they communicate how there are garden walls, ancient garden walls down at Palace Bay that are centuries old. I love them. They're just these weird shadows in the grass now. So we've got these long rows going down the hill that mimic those garden walls down at Palace Bay. And then we've got mounds that are in a formation that is like the number five on on a die, which the adjective is fairly perilous <laughs> to pronounce. <laughs> which is what? Uh, quincunks. But anyway, in this quincunks formation, which is what the kind of formation that Banks recorded while spurring, did drawings of Anoda Bay when they arrived there. And the cultivations on the hillside, there were mounds in this strictly geometric um, formation. So these were really well-tended gardens, and so we have utilised that formation uh, to make mounds out of which we're going to have native herbs, and many of them threatened. And more importantly than anything, it's the way in which they're laid out. It's a compositional element. Wait, what do you currently got growing out of the top of them? Some sprawly stuff. Mulambekia, pohuehue. And what I want to do is, if we can, from private land, um, <laughs> go, go nip a bit of Pohuehue, um, uh, Mulembekia complexa, uh, that's, that's got loads of butterflies on it, Then and we just shove them underneath there, just a few stems, then we'll get the eggs. And the idea is we just, we just want to have clouds of copper butterflies. But also down the bottom, we've got Matagari. And uh, that particular form of Matagari, a friend of mine with a really great nursery down at Nelson, he <clears throat> grows that form, which is from Boulder Bank at Nelson. Now, Banks and Solander on the first day they were ashore. Lots of people in New Zealand, especially high country farmers, will be familiar with Matagari as an inland plant, but it's also coastal, and it grew as far north as near Auckland. Um, and 
they collected it first day behind the beaches. But the coastal forms of Managauri, they tend to be sprawling. So they're not the, they're not the kind of things that get up to three metres. This one's a, a low-growing form from Boulderbank. And um, so as part of the 1769 story, the fact that they collected Managauri from the beach, just for anybody who's into their natural history, is just a bit odd, really. Botanist Graham Atkins is a Department of Conservation ranger with a deep knowledge of local plants and a knack for finding the rare and unusual. He's been pivotal in choosing and supplying plants for the 1769 garden. Plants have always been a passion of mine, and so to be able to be paid to do what I like to do sort of doesn't get much better. Now, we're in the 1769 garden, and there are some really special and interesting plants planted on these rocky mounds. Can you talk me through some of them? The idea of these um, the plants in the 1769 garden is pretty much self-explanatory. They were the plants that were around when Captain Cook and the crew from the Endeavour showed up, and um, they were the, the plants that they collected from um, Gisborne, uh, Anoda Bay, and Tolaga Bay nearly 250 years ago. So um, we've got a lot of the smaller plants, the herby-looking plants, that have been planted into these mounds. And um, with my um, good friend, Philip um, Smith, he's the landscape architect. This is all his dream, and um, I'm just wrapped to be included in all this by travels with my job, knowing where all these um, plants are that, that they collected all those years ago. So, yeah, I'm just glad to be part of it. So this tumbling mass of green here with the little pink flowers, that's a native geranium? Yep, geranium salandrii. Once upon a time it must have been really, really common, common as grass probably. But um, in this day and age with all the introduced plants and um, grasses they, um, and um, animal pests, um, the biggest threat to, the, to the, the, our native geraniums are from rabbits and hares. And they dig up, dig up the bulbs and eat the bulbs and so finish the plants off. They're quite up, often um, up on steep bluffs and stuff where, you know, hares and rabbits and goats and deer can't quite get around to finish them off. That's the same story with the kakabi ground here as well? Exactly, said to say exactly the same story. Um, most of the remaining wild kakabi plants that, um, that I manage, they're all up on um, pretty steep, um, steep sites and I, I don't think that's because that's their favourite habitat. It's just that that's there where they've been forced to with all the animals that we've introduced, so the steep sites are their refuge now. Well, let's just walk around these mounds. These, this beautiful, greeny, coppery, wiry plant in front of me, what's that? It's um, Caprosma acerosa. Its um, preferred habitat was um, um, in the dunes, so um, it likes it at the back of the dunes, so it's the probably the first of our tree species that when, um, when forest starts to, to develop behind the dunes, this is usually the first one that um, pops up, so Caprosma acerosa. So it's got really flattened, almost pine needly like leaves, doesn't it? Yeah, and that, that would be an, an adaptation to the habitat that it grows, so um, wind-blasted sand, salt spray, not a very place, not a very good, nice place to live, but through, through having the small leaves and, the, and flat to the ground, it's all about conformity. You dare not poke your head up above the rest. And what about this one over here that looks, from a distance, it almost looks like a lavender, you know, like a, one of those really fine lavender bushes. This is a real um, personal favourite of mine. This is old Wallenbergia grisolenta. That's um, uh, its common name is a harebell. And um, it's got this time of the year, it just starts to flower, so we're lucky to have 
the lavender blue flowers on it, and um, they look like little stars. They almost seem to, when the, the plant is, ends up a mass of flowers, and you can't really see the, the stems or the stalks that the flowers um, grow on, they, um, it looks like they're floating. And there's a much bigger leafed one on the, on the mound next door, which almost looks, it almost looks more weedy. Yeah, it's, um, we're lucky that today here, this is Sinecio Banksii, and he collected um, Banks and um, Solander collected this one from Anoda Bay nearly 248 years ago. And uh, um, I can happily report that um, there's still a, still growing in, at, at Anoda Bay up on a steep um, coastal bluff. So they're still hanging there to this day, so which is quite surprising. That's amazing, and it's just got buds opening, so it's going to have some real, real yellow flowers when they open. They're um, a member of the daisy family, and so when you when you see the flowers open, you you can see the affinities to the da- the other daisies. So yeah, so it's one of the first plants that Banks got named actually named after him. So Sanicio Banksy, oh, it's a beauty. So who's this other one? There's another one over there that's got one yellow flower on the top. Yeah, this one is. Um, Sanchez Kirkii, that's um, our native puha. All the puhas that we eat now, talking about um, us as Māori, all the puha we eat now, they were all um, accidental introductions when they brought the, past- the grass seed over to sow in the hills, whereas this one here is the, the species of puha that's um, endemic to this country. So its name is Sanchez Kirkii, and um, I've got heaps of them growing around my house, and so... You know, they, they reckon the they introduced puhas were a lot sweeter, but I beg to differ. You know, this is the, the puha that was, you know, from this country. And, I, you know, I might be a bit one-eyed, but um, I favour it. And it's a lovely plant. Graham says it's just the beginning for the 1769 garden. He has plans to introduce many more plants, especially short-lived ones just in time for the 250th celebration of Cook's first encounter with Māori in two years' time. What I like the most is it's going to be an educational resource, you know, for our plants and, and the, the various threats they, they face. Because um, I work in, I work in the coalface of conservation. When you work there, you realise the, the struggle that a lot of our native things face. And, and um, once the, the, the threats that make our, our plants rear become a lot more common... Well, I, I, I don't think myself, personally, I don't think there's going to be a lot of um, flora and fauna going uh, much further into the future. Sad to say. No, so yeah, back to the educational side of things. So there, there's hope there. Thanks, Graham. That was Graham Atkins from DOC. And we also heard from Dame Anne and Jeremy Salmond, Judith and Gary Shields, Carol and Steve Ring, Philip Smith from O2 Landscapes, and James Guild from the Queen Elizabeth II National Trust. That's our show for tonight, but you can always find more at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Don't forget you can sign up for our weekly email newsletter there too and click on the Series and Podcasts tab to find lots of fascinating RNZ podcasts. Thanks for listening. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai topo. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.